All right, let's get started this morning. Let me open us, our class, by praying. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are grateful for, um, grateful for this day. We're grateful for um, the gift of Sabbath rest that we anticipate in eternity, Father, and that you give us a foretaste of now on this day, the Lord's Day, um, as we um, rest from our labors, as we um, gather to worship in your presence as we um, receive from you the gifts of your hand. Father, we pray this morning as we prepare for our worship that you would bless us as we study your word, that you would give us um, insight even into um, the, the matters of your law, of your commandments, Father, and how they're good for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, good morning. It's great to have you all this morning um, in this class. We're just starting today, so um, this is a class that will last probably through the, um, at least until the time that I uh, will be here. Um, I'll be, as I mentioned in my uh, letter this week to the congregation, and as I announced several weeks at the congregational meeting, we'll be going on sabbatical in mid-May. So um, this class will last up until about May 10th, and so we're looking at 10 or 11 weeks um, that we'll have together to look at, um, not coincidentally, the Ten Commandments. Um, so that works out well. Um, so today we're going to do an introduction to the topic, um, to the law in general in the scriptures, and also to the Ten Commandments specifically. And then the plan basically is just to take a commandment a week um, and to, to do it that way, to really um, take time. And these are, you know, not long commandments, of course. Um, they're short. They can be memorized. I encourage you to memorize them. Um, uh, but there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to think about. And that's what we're going to find out as we go through the Ten Commandments. Um, just in terms of resources, just want you to know some of the resources that I will be um, using. Uh, Peter Lightheart um, has a new book on the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to be looking at that book. I would recommend it to you. It's a great little short little 100-page book or so on the Ten Commandments. Um, I'll be using the Institutes of John Calvin. Um, Calvin has a wonderful detailed exposition of the Ten Commandments um, that really unpacks their meaning and significance and implications, I think, really well. Um, so that's something that, you know, is just out there that's available to you if you're interested in this topic. Um, also, I will be looking at, um, and we'll be looking at together a lot, actually, the Westminster um, Standards, especially the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, if you've never read the Larger Catechism, I think it's a real gift to the church. Um, the detail of the exposition in the Larger Catechism, uh, the pastoral nature of the Larger Catechism is deeply helpful, I think. And I think we're going to see that as we walk through. And, and uh, one of the biggest sections of the Westminster Larger Catechism is actually an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, for each, question, each, each commandment, the, the Larger Catechism goes into great detail, both about what does this commandment require us to do, so what does it require us to do positively, and what does this commandment uh, prohibit us from doing in terms of our behavior. And that's something that's really interesting about the commandments. Um, and we'll talk about this more, but, but as we study them together, we're going to think about ways in which, you know, many of the commandments are framed negatively, right? Um, um, thou shalt not kill, um, shall not commit adultery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the idea that we're going to unpack is that God's commandments are, are not only prohibitive, um, they're also commendatory. They also commend for us um, behaviors and actions. And so we're going to be thinking about like things like, it's not sufficient just not to keep the sixth commandment, to not kill anyone, right? 
But what does it mean to actively keep that commandment in a way um, that protects life, um, that actually looks after the life of our neighbor and our community? So things like that are things we're going to be talking about as we move through um, this discussion this spring. Um, As you all know, um, if you've been part of Sunday School for the last several years, um, each spring we, we typically focus on different parts of God's Word. I spent three springs in a row going through book by book the entire Bible. So we covered all 66 books, spent basically a week on each book from Genesis to Revelation, um, just to kind of get a big picture, to give a, an, an introduction to each one of those books so that we could really wrestle with it, even on our own. Um, and then last spring, um, we spent uh, a long two months or so um, with a detailed sort of exposition and study of the Epistle of James. So it took a specific genre of those scriptures and then we did a deep dive into it. That's what we'll be doing this, this period of time that we have together this spring, taking a specific genre of the scriptures, in this case, the law of God, the legal code, and doing a deep dive, doing a sort of detailed study and discussion and exposition um, of that part of God's word. And, and probably next spring we'll take you know, a narrative portion or maybe something from uh, wisdom literature. The idea that we want to do is you know, just take different parts of God's word together and go through them. Uh, one by one. And as your pastor, that really is one of my deepest hearts for what I understand to be my calling, is for us to study the scriptures together and for me to do as much as I can to help you in that task, um, to help you not only uh, study the scriptures as we gather together, but also um, to help you learn how to study the scriptures on your own in ways that, that you're confident in, that give you um, a life, that, that are nourishing to your soul. Um, because we really believe that the scriptures are that important for us. And so that's what we'll be doing um, for the next uh, 10 or 11 weeks or so. Any questions about any of that? Anything that's unclear? Okay, very good. All right, so I wanted to start this morning by um, just talking about the law in general. I'm guessing that, um, you know, if you're like me or most of us, probably the law is one of the parts of the scriptures that you may be least familiar with, right? It's, it's a, it actually is a substantial part, especially of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, um, the legal code that's given there. But it's often a part of the scriptures that's hard to understand at times or, or confusing. You know, how do we make application of that law for us today? Is it really even binding on us today? Are these things that we have to obey in order to please God? And so, um, because of that, I just want to kind of talk a little bit today as an introductory um, a lesson, just about how, how do we think about the law of God generally? Uh, how do we think about the Ten Commandments specifically um, to give us a context before we get into the first commandment next week? So, um, so I want to start just by thinking about what do we believe regarding the law? Now, if you don't have a handout, I may have run out. Um, um, this is in your hymnals, actually. Um, You can find it, the Westminster Confession of Faith is in the very back, and we'll be looking at chapter 19. Let me see the page number here real quick. So in your hymnal, that's page 859 of the Law of God, and it's printed for you on your handout. So here's how um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is the Um, the theological document to which our church subscribes. Um, Any office bearer in our church um, is required to affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith as a faithful summary of what the scripture teaches. 
about God and man. And so here's what that confession says about the law of God. The moral law doth forever bind all, or we could say does forever bind all, as well justified persons as other, as others, to the obedience thereof. This is paragraph five of that chapter. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve it, but much strengthen this obligation. I wanted to jump right in here as we think about the law of God, because a lot of Christians struggle with this question. Well, is the law binding? Is the Ten Commandments binding? There was actually, as I was doing some preparation for today, um, we're doing some reading about Andy Stanley. You all, I don't know if you all know who Andy Stanley is. He's a sort of megachurch pastor, son of Charles Stanley um, in Georgia, I believe. Um, and he recently has come out saying very publicly and, and definitively, the Ten Commandments are not binding on believers today. If you are a New Testament Christian, if you're in Christ, the Ten Commandments are not binding because Jesus gave a new commandment, which is that we should love one another, and love one another is the, is, is the commandment now. So uh, whenever you think about a moral action, the question you should ask is, is this a loving action um, towards my brother or towards my neighbor? Um, and that is, the, that is the sum total of, of God's law today. And we should really not think about the Ten Commandments as being binding on us in a specific way. So this is a, this is a thing that's out there, right? It's a thing that people... Um, wrestle with today? How do we view the law of God? So within our, our theological tradition, um, we would separate the law into three parts. We would say um, the civil law are laws that are given um, to enact justice um, by way of the state. Um, um, so this, this has, you know, all sorts of laws fall under this category. Um, we would say that there's also the ceremonial law, uh, laws that are given about the sacrificial system or about dietary constraints that are given to Israel um, in Leviticus. And then finally, there's the moral law. Now, we would say that both the civil and ceremonial law are fulfilled in Christ and in the church. Um, uh, now, that doesn't mean that those laws, we should just skip over those laws when we come to the scriptures. There's actually, I think, a great deal of, of wisdom and knowledge that we can glean from them, the ways in which um, they prefigure Christ, they prefigure the church. Um, certainly, as we think about um, the laws that we would want to see enacted in our society today, even in a political way. We should look at the civil law of Israel and say, what principles, what applications can we make? Um, certainly, um, that law was not arbitrary, um, but it was actually intended to teach us about how God intends for communities to be structured and to be ordered um, with certain rules and consequences for breaking those commandments and those rules. Um, but we would say that third part of the law the moral law, what we call, um, as it's described in this chapter, is not, it is fulfilled, of course, in Christ in some sense, but it is not abrogated, it is not put away. It actually continues to be binding. Um, that's what this chapter of the Confession says so clearly. It forever binds all, unbelievers as well as believers. That's why it says, as well justified persons as others, right? The moral law is binding on all to the obedience thereof. And neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but actually much strengthens this obligation. So we would say, sorry, Andy, um, we actually believe that the Ten Commandments are binding on you as a person, 
made by God, um, and even more so as a justified person who trusts in Christ, the moral law, um, the law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and that's really the right way to think about the commandments. The Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law. All other parts of the moral law find their root in one of or multiple commandments that are summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, And actually, we would say, Andy, friend, how, when you ask yourself that question, is this an act of love towards my neighbor that I'm about to engage in, do you answer it, right? I think that really is a fundamental problem with adopting that sort of ethic of love. It sounds really uh, pious in some ways and really uh, simple in some ways, but then you get kind of complicated, right? Um, How do I love my neighbor, right? Is it loving for me to Um, You know, what if uh, I say, if I, you know, shave a little bit off my tax return, um, I can give that money to the poor. Um, And certainly the poor perhaps deserve it more than um, the federal government does. And so perhaps that is an act of love, right? I mean, you can see how this kind of moral calculus can be done. Um, And you can extend this out onto all over the place. And so what we would say is, Andy, the way, the how do you know how to love your neighbor? Well, luckily, God has told us, right? He's summarized that um, in the last, um, as our tradition holds, the last six commandments are having to do with how to love your neighbor, right? You are called to honor your parents. You are called to um, not kill and protect life. You're called to not commit adultery, etc., etc. And this actually gives you a framework for understanding what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the, the first four commandments have to do with what does it mean to love God, right? What does it mean to love God? Well, God tells us. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You don't make um, graven images to use in worship. Um, you don't bear my name in vain. Um, you remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Does that make sense? So we would certainly not disagree with Andy that love is the best way to summarize, if we're going to do even a summary of the Ten Commandments, sure. And that's what Jesus does, right? Patrick preached on this passage several weeks ago in our sermon. What, are the greatest, what is the greatest commandment, right? The, the scribe asks um, Jesus, and he says there are two, right? Or he says the first is love God with all your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And we would say, what was Jesus doing that moment? Well, he was just simply, as a good Israelite who believed in the importance and the strength of God's law, summarizing the Ten Commandments um, as an ethic of love. But that does not mean that, therefore, the Ten Commandments are not still binding upon us. Um, And just some proof texts here that our confession uses. Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, of course, you can read the Sermon on the Mount, really, as an exposition on the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus actually is um, like a new Moses, right? He goes up on the mountain, and instead of receiving directly from God um, the new law that is given to the people of Israel, he actually speaks on behalf of God, as God, we might say, the new law. But the new law, the Sermon on the Mount, is really an, an expansion and an exposition of the Ten Commandments filtered through his own person and his own teaching, right? Think about um, for example, you know, Jesus talks about, um, you have heard it said, um, thou shalt commit adultery. I say to you, 
um, whoever has lust in his heart has ever already committed. So it's an intensification of the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's a, it's a detailed um, sort of, Jesus is starting with the Ten Commandments. He's not saying um, these don't matter anymore. Toss them in, in the trash bin. He's saying this is what the Ten Commandments actually mean uh, through my person in a more deep, a deep way. And you're going to be better enabled to, to fulfill the Ten Commandments because of the new way in which you're going to be in union with me and you're going to be indwelled with the Spirit in a new way uh, through my life, death, resurrection, and ascension. 1 John 2, the apostle writes, And by this we know that we have come to know Christ, Him, if we keep His commandments. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. John, if you read John, you'll know that he will say over and over again in his epistle, love one another, right? That's, that's basically the summary of 1 John, right? Love one another. But he's saying this is not some new commandment. This is actually an old commandment, that love was always the heart of the law. Um, and of course, Jesus, when he speaks, when he summarizes the Ten, the Ten Commandments as love God and love your neighbor, he's actually directly quoting from the Old Testament, right? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, love God, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He's quoting from Leviticus 19, where Jesus didn't think of this idea Oh, he did think of it because he also authored Leviticus, but he didn't think of it at that second um, in his earthly life, right? Uh, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's actually an Old Testament ethic, not a New Testament one in some separate um, way. Uh, Romans 3, 13, Paul says, uh, do we then overthrow the law by this faith, this righteousness that is attained by faith? By no means, right? And if you read Paul, you know that's Paul's like, Emphatic no, right? That's Paul saying no uh, with an exclamation point afterwards. By no means, how could you think that we overthrow the law by this faith? On the contrary, we uphold the law. Um, so, so we would say that there is no abrogation of the moral law, that the Ten Commandments are actually something that are binding upon you. And indeed, they are the summary of the totality of the moral law of God, which is what binds you in terms of obedience to God and any transgression or sin that you might commit. Any sin that you might commit is in an infraction of one of or more of the Ten Commandments. Um, that's what we would say. That's actually how we know what sin is. <clears throat> six, paragraph six, if you're continuing on your hymnal or on your handout. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be verified, justified, or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. So this is saying, although we do believe that we are no longer um, uh, required to sort of justify ourselves by the law, by keeping of the law, that our keeping of the law is not um, what will save us, um, what will deliver us from God's wrath, what will justify us or make us righteous in God's sight, yet they are still great use to us. So how is the law good for us if it's not something that is given to us to keep in order to sort of earn our salvation, so to speak? Um, it is a great use to us as well as to others, the others who are not believers, and that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God. So this is the way in which the moral of the law is particularly helpful for us. Um, not only does it reveal our sin and our need for God, um, but it also shows us um, the will of God. Um, God's own heart, God's own character. And we're going to be talking about that as we go through each of these commandments. How does this commandment reveal who God is? 
right? The, the Ten Commandments are not just an exposition of do's and do nots for us to keep. They're actually a revelation of God's own character and person. Um, God shows us and tells us who he is in his law by the things that he says we must or must not do. Um, it informs us of the will of God and of our duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and to the perfection of his obedience. Um, so what, what the, the confession is saying here is that the law of God is not only useful in that it tells us about God and his will and who, what he is like, it also is useful for us in that it reveals our sin. And that hopefully actually will be one of the effects of this class this spring as you take it, that you will understand your sin more deeply and more honestly as you study the law of God. And that actually is a good thing, I would say, for you, um, because it is... Uh, the, the, the sins to which we are blind that we are unable, humanly speaking, to repent of, right? Um, we have to be exposed. Our hearts have to be open before God. And the way that they're open before God and we truly understand our sin and the depths of it is by studying his law, by studying the law that he has given us. And that, consequently, as the confession so well puts it, gives us a clearer sight of the need that we have of Christ, and the perfection of his obedience. Right? It is only as we understand ourselves to be great sinners, and not just mouth that word, but actually to really have some sense of what our sin is, what our particular sin is, um, the ways in which we are tempted, the way in which we fall short of God's law, that we will more deeply understand our need for Jesus, right? our need for his grace and his mercy, and the perfection of his obedience the way that he does not fail in the ways that we do um, to love God or to love our neighbor, but actually he fulfills that. He does it on our behalf. Does that make sense? There's a real, and I think this is true, just in terms of the Christian life, that, that as you walk with Jesus, um, what generally I think happens is that you, you sin less because sanctification is real, like over time, right? Your whole, the Holy Spirit really is at work in you. Um, you actually are sinning less than you did, you know, 10 years before um, if you walk with Jesus. But you are more aware of your sin, even though it's less than you were 10 years ago, right? Because you're growing in wisdom. You're growing in knowledge of God's law. You're growing in knowledge of your own heart. And you're seeing, actually, you know, my sin is far deeper than I ever realized. You know, 10 years ago, I didn't think I was so bad. Um, but turns out, you know, um, I was actually really bad off, and maybe I'm a little better now, but I still have a long way to go. Like that, that is, the, I think, the progression of the normal Christian life, that we grow in a deeper awareness of our sin, because the Spirit reveals it to us that way. Um, when we begin the journey of following Jesus, if we truly knew our sin, I think we would, it, it would be very discouraging. Um, so <laughs> we, need, we need the help of the Spirit over time um, to prepare us to understand even our sin. It is likewise of use to the regenerate, the law of God, the moral law of God, to restrain their corruptions and that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. 
although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. And this is something that I think as modern people we sometimes struggle with, that the law implies that if we don't keep the law, we won't be blessed in the same kind of way as we would if we had kept it. And actually our confession says, yeah, that's right. And that's one of the reasons you have the law of God, to say, if I commit adultery, if I harbor um, you know, sexual sin in my life, um, that's secret, it will actually not only displease God, but have consequences in my life. And that is actually one of the reasons why I shouldn't do that, right? Sometimes I think we can have this idea that the only reason I should abstain from sin is because of um, my love for Jesus or because, um, you know, because of God's glory or something. Well, those things are certainly true. You should abstain from sin for those reasons. But friends, you should also abstain from sin because you don't want bad things to happen to you. And bad things will happen to you if you engage in unrepentant sin. Um, and that's part of what the law of God has given to us, even as believers, to understand that, that God um, has structured his creation in such a way. He is bringing about the redemption of the world through his son in such a way that if we live contrary to his moral law, to his expression of his own will and commandments, then we will receive consequences, even in this life, uh, for that. Um, it, and it will be just, it will be deserved, and that is actually something that we should wrestle with even as believers. Um, and on contrary way, the confession says, the promises of it, the promises of the law, in like manner show them God's appropriation or his approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect on performance thereof, although not as due to them by a law, by the law as a covenant of works. Um, so the point here is, the law is also given to us to know what way we should live in so that we might be blessed by God. And this does not mean that we are Pelagians, that we are you know, saying that we earn our way to heaven or we default our way out of heaven by our keeping of the law or not keeping the law. This is just saying that God has set the world up in such a way that if we live in obedience to his law, he will bless us. Now, of course, that blessing will not always take the forms that we maybe want it to take in our flesh, right? but he will bless us. We can be assured of that. And the law actually gives us that promise, and it should be part of why we study it. <clears throat> so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Actually, being under grace means you take God's law seriously, and you believe that keeping it will lead to blessing, and disobedience of it will lead um, to to um, to consequences, to even curse, curses and judgment from God. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel. This is something that's distinctively true about our vision and understanding of the law, that to see the law in a positive way is not contrary to the grace of the gospel. Um, as Reformed folk, um, we would say that there is no deep um, antithesis between the law and the gospel as though they need to be set against one another again and again. Actually, the law is gracious. It is part of the gospel. It is part of the good news that God gives us in Jesus Christ is the moral law, his commandments for how we should live. Um, they are not, the uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but I love how the confession puts this, but do sweetly comply with it. Actually, Law and gospel sweetly comply with one another. The spirit of Christ subduing 
and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. All right, any questions about any of that? Any discussion about things I've said so far about the law of God and its use for us? Yeah. Do you have any would you have any objection to like there's an argument that the thrust of Deuteronomy is the Ten Commandments kind of as a table of contents and that the, the rest yeah. of Deuteronomy actually explicates the Ten Commandments one by one beginning to end. Right. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. So Todd is noting the so the Ten Commandments. If you don't know, appear twice in the Scriptures. They appear in Exodus 20, right? Very soon after Israel leaves Egypt, um, and they gather at the Mount of Sinai in Exodus 19. Um, the Lord comes down um, to Moses, and he in Exodus 20 receives the Ten Commandments. Then they also are repeated by Moses um, at the beginning of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 5. Um, in Deuteronomy, um, the Lord is, um, has gathered the second generation of Israelites after the first that apostatized and fell in the wilderness have died. And now their children, um, Moses is still alive, the very end of his life, are about to go into the promised land. And so Moses restates the law of God and reinitiates the covenant between God and Israel um, as sort of his last act, his last will and testament. And that's what Deuteronomy is. And, and the Ten Commandments there comes at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5. And therefore, Paul, I'm sorry, Todd is saying there's sort of a table of contents for the entire book of Deuteronomy um, that yeah, unpacks not only the moral law, but also the civil and ceremonial law. Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair way to put it. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Jeremy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that's honestly a failure of modern Protestant preaching. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I just wouldn't set those things against one another. I would say it actually is good news that God shows us His will. And, and calls us to keep it and obey him. Um, and yeah, you want to give context and say that we do these things only by the work of the Spirit and union with Jesus, all those things. But I think, I do think, I think it's a failure of modern evangelical preaching, at least, that we are unwilling at times to, we're afraid of being called legalistic. Preachers are, I think, sometimes. And it, and it holds them back from making declarative statements in the pulpit about what God's law is and what it requires and how to keep it. Um, and I think that's a failure or a weakness, at least in modern evangelical preaching, in, in my opinion. 
Yeah, Scott. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you have to be. It is. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in I mean, many ways it's the same kind of argument I would make generally against dispensationalism, that um, it, it, it sets an antithesis between the Old and New Covenant that I just don't see in the Scriptures. Um, and uh, generally speaking, I think that, that if God intended for the Israelites to set a, or the new Israel in Christ to set aside the Ten Commandments in some definitive way, it would have been a lot more clearer and Jesus would not have said the things that he did that seem to be so consistent with the Ten Commandments. Um, I mean, even you read the epistles, and you know Paul and James both exculpate, um, you know, adultery and murder. You know, like like it just it seems as though it, it forms the basis of Jesus's ethical thought um, of the ethical thought of the apostles, um, and it's just so consistent. I, for me, it's just a very it's a very hard. You have to take a couple verses really out of context in order to build that case and ignore, you know, the vast bulk of the evidence, in my view. Um, but yeah, so that, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's kind of the kinds of things I would say. Eric, and then we'll want to move on here and summarize a few other things. Yeah, I mean, large. You're right. The Ten Commandments do form the basis of the civil law in that the civil law explains, especially consequences and ramifications of violating the, you know, the last, you know, starting with the Sabbath. Really, I mean, really all throughout the civil law gives um, penalties, right? Specific penalties for violation of the Ten Commandments. Um, and I would say, just as as we have to think about, certainly the Ten Commandments, I think, should form the basis of our nation's laws. I would be supportive of that, um, and I think as Christians we should want that. But I think we have to think through the penalties in a different way, um, and so that's largely what I'm thinking about in terms of the civil law. Is we have to read them through Christ, um, through um, uh, the the way in which um, Israel as a nation state is not. And, and so, therefore, America as a nation state is not at the heart of God's plan for redemption any longer. Um, and so, we, yeah, we read it through, we have, to, we have to read those through the lens of Christ in a different kind of way. Um, but, yeah, I understand what you're saying, that, that certainly, I don't want to say that Ten Commandments is not also a summary of, you know, obviously the, the ceremonial law all falls under different aspects of the Ten Commandments, you know, especially the first four. Uh, particularly, um, 
Uh, certainly the civil law also falls under the Ten Commandments, really all of the Ten Commandments. Um, and so I understand what you're saying, but I also want to say the, the division of ceremonial, civil, and moral is one that is well attested to in our tradition and, and explicitly stated in our standards. And I'm, I'm comfortable with I understand that there are some drawbacks and some limitations with it, but I think it's it. I think it's generally a faithful way to I understand that. I, I'm I'm sensitive to those concerns. Certainly, I don't know that our standard. I would. I don't know that I would as strongly critique our tradition or our standards in that way. But I understand the 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 point you're making. I certainly agree that we need to to take seriously the redemptive historical nature of the Ten Commandments and the the Ten Words, as you put it. And again, I wouldn't see a huge antithesis between those two titles or names for for this document. But yeah, no, I think I'm right with there with you. Um, Eric. So should we study the law of God? That's a question we have to wrestle with. And for me, I think I love the way that the Psalms talk about the law of God um, because it's so different from the way in which we often think about the law, right? Um, David says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, certainly the word that's used there is Torah, and certainly it's a more expansive word than just simply the legal code, but it includes the legal code. Um, it says we should meditate upon it day and night, that that is the path to blessedness, actually. The law of God, the law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19 says, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Right? So precepts, that's not just like the record of redemptive history or um, poetry or something. That, that's talking about commandments right? that God gives. Rejoicing the heart. They should rejoice our heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold. The rules of the Lord are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Just think, I mean, just let those words resonate in your soul, right? How the psalmist lauds the law of God and his rules that are given to us. He rejoices that God has not hidden his will from him, but actually revealed it and stated it, and it, it, he knows what God desires in order to be pleased. He knows what his, I mean, he rejoices over this. He says, the rules of the Lord are more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. Psalm 119, of course, longest psalm in the Psalter, basically an explication of the beauty and wonder and value of the law of God. That's what that psalm is, essentially. Um, just, you know, one random selection. I find my delight in your commandments which I love. I love your commandments. Can we say that, right? Can we say that with full hearts, that we love the law of God? 
I will lift up my hands toward your commandment, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is the way the scriptures talk about the law of God, and I think it's important for us to wrestle with that. Um, Just briefly, in terms of the context of the Ten Commandments, we, we will certainly talk more about this as we go. And some of the things that Eric and Todd have both pointed out are going to be part of that discussion. Um, uh, it's one really interesting thing about the Ten Commandments is that they're all singular, um, second person singular. So you, person, one person, right? Not plural, which is interesting, um, right? You shall, um, you know, have no other gods before you. Um, yeah, that's a singular you there. Or you, not a y'all. It's a singular, yeah, it's like, it's a you, it's, a, it's one person. Um, and all throughout, that's how it is, like, um, thou shalt not kill. Um, that's why it is thou, in old English, thou is a singular you. Um, we don't have those distinctions in modern English today. Um, thy would be the plural. Um, so, um, or thee, rather. Um, so, the, the point is that... that um, this is spoken to, it's very interesting, and I think the way that it fits is that, in redemptive history, is that, um, remember what the Lord has says to Pharaoh again and again, that he wants his son to be set free, that Israel is his son, that his son needs to come out and worship him. And, and the Ten Commandments are framed as though it was one person speaking to another person individually. And I think that's really what they are, that the Lord is speaking to Israel collectively as his son, that he's called out from Egypt um, and out of slavery um, to live in freedom before him. And it's father-son talk. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's, in many ways, it's like, you know, the Proverbs, right? The Proverbs are a father passing down wisdom um, to his son. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're a father speaking to his son collectively as a whole and, and training him in instruction. Israel is like a little baby at this point, right? She just got free of Egypt like 10 seconds ago. And even if you read, right, the, the chapters between the Red Sea and Exodus 20, um, they're full of immaturity and grumbling and complaining, right? The first thing out of the Israelites' lips, you know, within a chapter after Pharaoh's armies are defeated and the plagues happen and all this stuff, amazing, you know, earth-shattering, redemptive, historical, miraculous things. And they say, we want to go back to Egypt. Like, what are we doing out here? We're going to starve, and it's, I mean, it's just, it's just shocking, right? If you read, actually, in God's providence, I've been reading these chapters to our kids at night recently, um, and it's just shocking the, the disparity between God's faithfulness and the, the weakness of the faith of Israel and her obedience. And so that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're, they're, hap- they're, they're to a newborn child, basically, who's just coming out of the womb um, and needs to be trained up. And that is certainly what's happening redemptive historically. Another thing that I think is really important for us to meditate on as we think about um, the context of the Ten Commandments is something that one of my professors really drilled into us as students when I was in seminary. He would always say when we think about um, the law of God generally or Ten Commandments specifically that Exodus comes before Sinai. Exodus comes before Sinai. Um, and what did he mean by that? That four-word phrase that he just sort of repeated again and again that we sort of reflexively memorized, Exodus comes before Sinai. What he meant was, just in redemptive history, did God 
with Israel in Egypt come to them and give them his law and commandments and say, um, you need to keep these, and if you keep these faithfully, then I will be um, pleased to deliver you out of slavery. No, right? That's not at all what he did. Um, Actually, there's a great deal of evidence that there was a lot of sin and apostasy in in Egypt by the Israelites when Moses came. Um, He actually, just because they cried out for mercy and asked for help and said, um, deliver us, the Lord remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Exodus says, the early part of Exodus. And he had mercy upon them and he delivered them. And after he delivered them, after he set them free from this terrible situation that they could not get out of in any uh, way by their own strength. That is when he came to them and gave them, as a father speaking to a son, his law and his commandments and his words. And I think that is such a fundamental uh, contextual thing to keep in mind when we think about the law of God, that it always happens in the context of God's grace and mercy and kindness. It actually is an expression of God's grace and mercy and kindness Um, It is not somehow the things that we are supposed to do so that God will love us. No, right? It's the way in which we know that God actually loves us, that he has set us free, that he's brought us to himself, and that he has told us actually how to live before him. Um, And that's what you see in the Old Testament in Exodus, and that's certainly the way that it works in our relationship with Jesus. All right, let's stand and pray this morning as we prepare for worship. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you that it is indeed more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. Father, we pray that you would help us as we study together these 10 words, these 10 commandments uh, this spring, that it would be that for us, Father, that we would grow in wisdom, um, that we would, even by your Spirit, learn uh, more and more what it is to follow in your ways, that we would do this through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.